previously on the Who's Who podcast. All right, our first entry is Starfire. That's right, Starfire. And not the one you're expecting. This is a sci-fi character, art by Mike Vosberg, and she first appeared in Starfire number one. It was a short-lived series, only went like seven or eight issues, I want to say. Yeah. Anyway, it's a sci-fi story about this group of people, that, and they form a... a I'm not going to get this very well. I'm sorry. Another planet. They're being oppressed by these alien races, and she stands up and rebels. That's that's the short of it. That's the elevator pitch of it. And she is totally badass. Like, honestly, I've never read an issue with her. But the, between the art and the description of her story, I'm like totally into this character now. I think she's awesome. She She's standing there in, in the imagery. She's got these giant freaking earrings that are like as big as her forearm. She's holding a, a giant sword and a gun. She's got these really sexy thigh-high boots, really short shorts, and looks like half a bra, maybe. A bra that and, doesn't really connect anywhere. God bless it. And she's, you know, dark raven-haired beauty. And she is kicking some ass on the inside. I, I'm sorry, in the, in the serpent, she's got on her funky outfit, which is a crazy-looking zebra tortoise sort of thing. Anyway, she's slicing up the alien. She's fighting this other woman uh, who is part of the pe- people controlling their people. She leads this group of rebels. In fact, her group affiliation is her own rebel band. <laughs> and each one of those is a capital letter. So that's an official title, her own rebel <laughs> band. They had they had a, they had three albums, by the way. So it's, it's an interesting story where basically it's two races who look for help and they each recruit alien races to help them and then the alien races take over. So they kind of screw themselves with that. By the end, I mean, there's, there's a lot of sexual subtext. I was reading about it online. I mean, she's basically a sex slave as she's growing up. And now she's standing up for herself. And uh, she has no powers, but she's tough as hell. And there's a lot of people out there that really like this character. And I'm very interested in her myself now. So have you ever read any of her stories? No, never once. The, the final paragraph makes me chuckle a little because it gets it gets so into like the jargon of the universe. Yeah. It says, Starfire finally found home of the priests and learned from them of the existence of the Eye of Armageddon. When last seen, she had set up to destroy it and rid her world of the Mygorg and perhaps also of the Yorg. <laughs> It's like it's like to anyone who has never read a Starfire comic, it's just gibberish, and it reminds me a little bit. Have you ever seen the movie Dune, the uh, David uh, Lynch Dune? I oh god, like in the theater. The and I haven't seen it since because okay. I saw it. They ran it. Uh, some friends of mine that that run movie old movies on big screen ran it a couple of weeks ago, so I saw it for the first time since I was a kid on the big screen, and it's just incomprehensible. I mean, yes. it's just it's so bogged down with jargon that you're yeah. just like, what the hell are any of these people talking about? And this is what it reminded me of. Over just like the Mygorg and the Yorg. <laughs> it's supposed to be like, ooh, she's going after the Yorg. What the hell does any of this mean? So I have no idea. But, you know, when you think about it, this was a female unknown character given her own title in 1976. That's pretty yep. unique. Yep. They don't do that now, let well, alone 1976. So that was... Well, did, she, did she make it to the implosion or is she... I got think killed? they canceled it before that. Oh, okay. But I, I, I don't know. I the, As we'll get, as we'll mention when we get to feedback, I got a lot wrong in the last two so I'm not going to be guessing as much on this. <laughs> well, I, it's Mike, Mike Vosberg drew the original series too, by the way. Yeah, it's a and nice listing. I mean, the artwork is great. Yeah, it's it's a great one to kick off with too. Yep, you yep. know, I love it, and I and I, I want to read more about her. I genuinely mean that. So, folks, other than her series, direct me to if there's anything else I should pick up, folks. Hello, and welcome to the seventh episode of Who's That. This show is a spinoff to the Who's Who podcast, which focuses on a single character that either Rob or I discovered through the Who's Who comic book. Now, we'll be looking at the history in the DCU with these characters, whether their appearance in Who's Who was enough, or was there more worthwhile of exploring? Folks, my name is the Irredeemable Shag, and with me is the Barbarella of the podcast Airwaves, Mr. Rob Kelly. How you doing, buddy? I prefer to think of myself, Shag, as a podcaster rebel in an enslaved world. 
<laughs> it's not that wrong. I mean, you're really not that wrong. <laughs> no. I said it. <laughs> so uh, this show was the brainchild of Rob, basically because I think I needed a week off and he needed to record something. But I got a lot of great ideas get started. <laughs> <laughs> I take too many vacations. <laughs> I I think the Who's That podcast was invented for Starfire and Balloon Buster. Truthfully, I really think the whole Who's That podcast, that if you listen back to how our excitement and our enthusiasm for those episodes, those entries so much, I think that's why the whole, these whole things exist. I, Starfire was definitely to my memory of the Who's Who show, not that it's over, but the, the original iteration of Who's Who. My memory was Starfire was really one of the characters most prominent in your mind of like, who is this? And I wish I knew more because this intro, this entry is really interesting, but I know nothing else outside of this entry. So this one, this one was one we always wanted to get to. We actually talked about it right after I did the first episode of Who's That. You and I talked about wanting to get to Starfire at some point. Now it's taken a couple of years in the Who's That <laughs> schedule, but we are finally here. We would have got here sooner if we didn't foolishly ask the listeners to vote. So uh... again, you can't do that. Democracy doesn't work. We all know that. Just. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, uh, we, we talked about this so long ago, and I can't remember whether it was when we originally covered it in 2014 or when we started the Who's That show. But either way, as a generous gift, Rob Kelly bought all eight issues of the Starfire series and mailed them to me. It was an incredibly generous gift, and I've got them sitting here right next to me, and I'm excited to talk about them. I love eBay sellers that sell the whole series as a package. That's like really <laughs> handy. So thank you, anonymous eBay seller. <laughs> well, Rob, I think it's time to say great jot. It's time to talk about our sponsors. <laughs> I love comic. I love comic book explana- uh, exclamations. So, folks, uh, this episode of Who's That is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to forty-two percent off with free shipping on orders of fifty dollars or more. What'd you bring, Rob? Well, since uh, Starfire is a creation of the writer David Michelini. I wanted to pick something that uh, he was involved with. So I found Taskmaster, anything you can do, trade paperback. That's really one of the great titles of a trade paperback I've ever heard. Uh, It is a collection (laughs) of stories featuring the villain Taskmaster. And you can imagine, of course, the reason why this has been collected is because Taskmaster appeared in the Black Widow movie. Very different version of the character in the comic. Nevertheless, it was the same kind of MO and then the name and everything else. This was always one of the coolest villains designed by George Perez features one of one of the great all time George Perez costumes. And that is saying something. Uh, This collection features a bunch of Taskmaster appearances from the Avengers, Marvel team up the thing. Yes. He had his own series at one point, amazing Spider-Man, Iron Man, Daredevil, Deadpool, Hawkeye Earth's mightiest marksman and other series. It's 352 pages, normal price, $34.99 $34.99 and in stock trades price is $20.29. That is 42% off. So if you know somebody out there, if you took your kid to see Black Widow and they really like this Taskmaster character, get them this because it features as much Taskmaster as you could possibly shake a bow at. And if your kid really, really enjoyed the character of Taskmaster, you might want to consider some um, consider some therapy. But anyway. <laughs> Sleep with one. Uh, Right. <laughs> well, I leaned into the the theme of the Starfire comic. It, it, it builds itself as swords and science, kind of a mix between fantasy and sci-fi. So I went after Legendary Red Sonia, trade paperback volume one. Now we're going to talk about Red Sonia a little bit in this episode as we go along. But the interesting thing about this Red Sonia trade paperback, it's kind of like an Elseworlds of, of Red Sonia, where they take her and take her out of uh, whatever the Hyborian age or whatever it is and drop her into a steampunk 
era where she's uh, facing off against science that's run amok. She's fighting in a neo-Victorian backdrop with clockworks and Tesla coils. She fights Victor Frankenstein and Captain Nemo. It sounds really cool. It's written by Mark Andreco, so you know it's great. He's a fantastic writer. The artist is uh, Aniki. I don't, I don't know them, but it's great artwork. And Joe Benitez does a cover. Page count is 128 pages. It's soft cover. It normally goes for $17.99, but you can get it for $12.59, so it's 30% off. And again, you know, the, the whole idea of swords and science kind of thing goes hand in hand with what we're going to be covering today. So check both of these out over on InStockTrades.com. Tell them the Fire and Water Podcast Network sent you. Can I say one thing about that pick, check? No. Okay. Go ahead. All right. Now, I'm, I'm just going to point out that this is the second Who's That in a row where one of the InStock Trades picks was a Red Sonja comic. Because really? I, I picked a Red Sonja comic for the Balloon Buster episode. What? Because that had art by Frank Thorne. And a bunch of Balloon Buster stories were drawn by Frank Thorne. So defying the odds, you and I have recommended Red Sonia twice during a Who's That podcast, even though that's a Marvel slash Dynamite character and has nothing to do with DC. But nevertheless, Red Sonia has shown up twice on InStock Trades Picks for Who's That. Let's see, Rob. You and I interested in a really strong (laughs) uh, personality, sexy redhead. That's so weird. I just can't Mm. imagine that ever happening, especially not if someone's been listening to Who's Who all these years. (laughs) Can't wait to see what we come up with next month. (laughs) (laughs) Cherry Pop-Tart. All right, so, uh, (laughs) folks, we also want to thank you folks at home for your Patreon support because running the Fire and Water Podcast Network with so many shows requires a lot of online hosting and other services. And a while back, we realized we needed some help with the expenses, and we launched the Patreon, and you folks really stepped up to help keep the network going. So if you're enjoying the Who's Who podcast, the best way to support the show is by visiting patreon.com slash fwpodcast. And while you're there, consider supporting the Fire and Water Podcast Network. And at certain tiers, you'll be mentioned on your show of choice, just like these folks who asked to be recognized on the Who's Who podcast. Our thanks to Chris Lydon, Corey Drew, Damian Whiter, Jeremiah Jones-Goldstein, Michael Atchison, Nathan Archer, Noah Tarnow, Michael O'Brien, Professor Chuck Coletta, Paul Ken, Steve Givens, Tom Perrin, Tom Paneris, David Ace Gutierrez, and Gord Tolton. Again, folks, just visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash f. W podcasts. All right. So folks, it is time to talk about Starfire. I, I gotta tell you, Rob, I'm a huge fan of Coriander. I think she's great uh on the new team. Oh wait. No, we're not talking about new team titans. Okay, sorry. Leon Leonard, uh the Red Star, you know, the Soviet Union, also Teen Titans. He's great. Did I tell you I've been reading the Perez Wolpen Teen Titans finally? I I'm, finally uh, even gotten around to it, yes. I know decades late. I finally read the first two years and I'm into year three now. All right, we're actually here to talk about Starfire. She doesn't have another name. She's just Starfire. But at the And you guys heard the intro where we talked about the Who's Who entry. But at the most basic level, Starfire is a sci-fi fantasy epic. Again, they use the tagline, Swords and Science, starring this gorgeous female resistance fighter. And on this far-off world, she's aided by her small band of rebels, armed with swords and occasionally a laser gun or two. And she fights to free her world from alien invaders, both the race of Mygorgs, and the Yorgs, who in the intro you heard Rob was significantly impressed with the Mygorgs and Yorgs. <laughs> so, Rob, you know, big picture here. You know, it ran for eight issues. What, what, are, your, what are your initial thoughts here? Well, what, on the, on the Who's Who listing or on the series that we're about no, to talk we about? No, we already talked about the Who's Who entry. We did that seven years ago. It's time okay. to talk about the entry. Good <laughs> well, Lord, I'm, keep I'm, up with the purpose my, of the show. My, my opinion might have changed in seven years. No, uh, <laughs> no having read the series, and we'll, we're going to talk about two specific issues here. Uh, this was like 
a lot of DC concepts in the 70s. They were throwing a lot at the wall and seeing what stuck. I could see why a reader might kind of look at this and go, this is, you know, it's kind of all over the place. It's kind of a pastiche of a lot of different things slapped together. That said, I think that had DC not um, handed it off to, I think, what, four different writers in the space of eight issues, that maybe if they had let Michelini stay on the book, if he had been so inclined, I read that interview, there's an article in Back Issue about this, about Starfire, and Michelini doesn't even recall why he left the book. Um, Of course, it was, you know, this was 40 years ago at this point. Um, Maybe if it had had a more consistent direction by one writer throughout, it might have gained a little traction. Um, That said, I liked what I read. You know, I mean, I hadn't read any Starfire comics until we were doing this episode, and I liked most of what I read. I I will say that uh, I didn't know what to expect going in. I think I probably expected more sci-fi, given they bill it as swords and science. It really does feel a lot more sword and sorcery than science to me. Uh, In fact, I would say of the four writers, uh, Steve Englehart, who wrote two issues and sort of towards the end there, I felt like his had the most science. And those are actually the two that engaged me the most. So I definitely, when they really rolled the science into it, I was into it. I was really enjoying the series. And it is kind of funny because as, as the writers switch, you're right. It is sort of haphazard where it's like, they introduce a bunch of characters, eh, the next issue, most of them are dead. You're like, what? <laughs> so we, we, we should probably get into the recap here in a second. But just to give you some background. So yes, it, it only lasted eight issues. It got canceled unexpectedly. Like the, the eighth issue just ends with, you know, come back next month. You don't even know it's going to get canceled. It, ra- it lasted uh, from 1976 to 1977. And a couple of things about her, as I, as I said, she's absolutely gorgeous. She's, uh, she's got black hair. She, they make a big point of pointing out that she's half Asian, half Caucasian. They don't use those words in the comic. They're a little less politically correct. But uh, they point out that she's, you know, uh, got this sort of exotic look, which works. I mean, she's beautiful, and you can kind of see the, the, the cheek structure and the eye structure in there. I, th- I think it works well. And uh, you, you can't really see that in the Who's Who entry, though. I'm looking at the Who's Who entry that we covered a little earlier. You don't see that sort of uh, mixed race in her. In fact, she's got a very Caucasian-colored skin. But uh, still, dy- dynamic look. Uh, Mike Vosberg, really, I'm sorry, I'm captive. It's a hot girl. I got, I got distracted. I'm sorry, folks. Well, something that you don't see in the Who's Who listing is because over the course of the series, they changed her costume mm-hmm. uh, into something a little less sci-fi and more Red Sonia-y. Uh, and I really like the original costume and we'll have some of these images on the website, fireandwaterpodcast.com. Her original costume where she's got the one cutoff leg and yes, the boob window, uh, but you've got this great uh, black and green pattern and I think it's a really striking outfit and I don't know why they changed it. I think this is much more captivating than the one she ends up with and I, it's too bad that that wasn't the costume they went with on the listing. Uh, because this is what she started with. And I will say the cover to the first issue, which I remember seeing in various in, let's see, in like ads and like Amazing World of DC Comics and like, you know, occasional magazine featuring selling back issues. The, the cover to this first issue is great. It's, it's by Ernie Chan and Vince Coletta. It's got her on the cover. It's colored this great magenta sky. And um, it has this the little cover corner symbol of her. And she's got like resting her leg on like the banner of the cover, <laughs> which I really love. Like this cover is really, really good. And if I had seen this on the newsstand, this would have captured my 30 cents. Um, maybe not the rest of them, but this first one at least, because to me, it's 
it's a grabber of an image. And as much as I like the Who's Who listing by Mike Vosberg, and we'll talk about his work a little later on, I wish they had gone with this costume because I just think it would have been more representative of who she was, and I just think a better visual. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to describe it a little further um, because you, you did describe a lot of it there. But it, as you, you said, the one whole, it's very asymmetrical. That's part of what's fascinating about it. Is one leg's completely exposed. One, the opposite arm is completely exposed. In addition to the boob window, there's a giant uh, section taken out of the stomach. Uh, and it's actually not black and green. It's uh, a light green and a dark green. And I bring that up for a specific reason because uh, in, a, in that back issue article, Mike Vosberg related that uh, and Michelini that the character's original name was going to be Aconda, A-K-A-N-D-A. And they said they, that it was kind of like uh, Anaconda, which is why they went that route. And once they said that, it all kind of clicked for me. Because if you look at that original costume, like look on the cover number one. That looks a lot like a snake pattern yep. and the way the costume sort of wraps around her body, leaving some skin exposed and some not. It's almost like a snake surrounding her. So it, it is pretty interesting to me that uh, I think that, that it's supposed to be, you know, emulate snakes, even though they never say that in the issue anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, you're right. The, in the rest of, in the inside, it's green on green on the cover. It's mm-hmm. black on green. I wish they kind of stuck with the black on green because I actually think it's it's just more captivating, but you've got these spaceships flying in the background. You've got these kind of like ape guys with spears. So, uh, you know, it says a new epic of swords and science. So it's, it's telling you everything that you need that it, it's going to have this mixture of sci-fi and, and sword and sorcery. But I just think they really came up with it. Mike Valsberg does the covers for the rest of the series, but, uh, but man, this, this original itch, original cover is just a real grabber. It's funny with four different writers and three different editors and and a bunch of different inkers. Vosberg's the only one who stayed the whole consistently through the whole series. But another thing that's a little inconsistent are the Mygorgs, which are here on the cover. Like you said, they look kind of like apes. Later on, they're supposed to be reptiles. And then later on, they just look like orcs. Like the Mygorgs, (laughs) they're never consistent, even though it's the same artist, which cracks me up. So, all right. So why don't we get into Starfire number one, uh, published in August, September, cover dates, August, September, 1976, on the shelves, May 6th, 1976. Also worth mentioning, this was the first DC heroine to receive her own title since Supergirl in 1972. So four years without another uh, female character launching. Obviously, Wonder Woman had her own ongoing series, but no more female characters launched at this point. So this was a big deal, giving a brand new character coming out of nowhere. I mean, not even like you know, like Supergirl starts off in Superman. None of that. She came right out of the gate with her own series. Now it was published bi-monthly. Cover price was only 30 cents. Page count was 32 pages. So for issue number one, don't get used to this creative team, folks. Uh, it's uh, writer David Michelini, penciler Mike Vosberg, inker is Robert Allen Smith, and editor is Joey Orlando. The issue title is A World Made of War. So here is the recap. Our story takes place on an unnamed world, but immediately feels familiar as it's populated with many classic fantasy and sci-fi tropes. We're introduced to Starfire, the gorgeous 18-year-old palace slave who's run away from her masters. Now in flashbacks, we learned her history, and we know they're flashbacks because the panels have rounded corners. So um, all the humans on this planet are slaves to either the orc-like Mygorg or the shadow-like Yorg these two different alien species. And Starfire was special as her parents were of different nationalities, and thus she has this unusual exotic look. This appealed to one of the chieftains of the orc-like race, the Mygorg. And as such, since infancy, Starfire was raised as a pampered palace slave, being groomed to eventually mate with this Mygorg chieftain. At age age 18, Starfire fled the palace rather than being forced to wed the disgusting alien. 
So as when she's on the run, she runs into a bunch of opposition and she's nearly captured. However, she is rescued by the dashing stranger who leaps into the fray and saves her. The stranger, he's a warrior priest named Dagon. He provides Starfire with sanctuary. Having been a slave her entire life, Starfire just doesn't understand what freedom is. And she believes that Dagon is her new master. Dagon does his best to teach Starfire self-worth and independence. He's a really good guy and tries to teach her her own freedom. Uh, he also teaches her the way of the ways of combat, in which she really, really excels at. So Dagon then explains the history of humanity and the civil war between the warrior priest caste and the scientist caste. Each faction summoned an alien race to serve their cause. The priests summoned the orc-like Mygorgs, and the scientists summoned the shadow-like Yorgs. Now, back in their own plane of existence, these two alien races were arch enemies. But once they're on this world, they cleverly turned the tables on the humans. The aliens actually ended up enslaving the humans and continued their war, but with the humans as their slaves. Over time, uh, Starfire and Dagon fall in love, and they find happiness together. Unfortunately, the peace is interrupted as Dagon is captured by the Mygorgs. Starfire tracks Dagon to the palace that she once escaped from, only to have him die in her arms. Starfire swears revenge and takes the fight to the Mygorg chieftain, which we see on the cover happening here. After killing the chieftain, Starfire realizes she won't quit until the whole world is free. Oof. So that's issue number one. Sets the whole table. It's everything you need to know. It's all a Starfire in one go. Now, she doesn't really become the Starfire you'll know and recognize till probably the last two pages. Because uh, before that, she's still kind of adjusting to being a palace slave. But what do you think of the issue overall? I enjoyed it very much as a setup, as a, you know, we, we have to cl- set the decks for her to, you know, become, as you said, the character that, that we're going to follow. Uh, I liked it quite a bit. And I thought the ending where she actually doesn't show mercy to the big bad guy and kills him, I thought was interesting because, of course, usually to make for, for it to be your hero at the very end, you know, they have to be like, all right, I will spare you. But no, in this case, she's like, no. And then he dies. And that's, you know, that's got us, I, I don't want to oversell it, but a slightly harder edge than what you would have expected in a DC comic book in 1976. There's, she kind of a, there's kind of a thing about that because um, the cover does not carry the approved by the comics code seal. Right. So the letters pages later on, people thought that she killed him. And that was part of the reasons because it wasn't comics pro, uh, code approved. And it turns out it was just a printing error. It's absolutely comic code approved. They just slipped off during printing. But I just thought that was kind of interesting. That murder actually led to some discussions related to that. Right, right. It's, yeah, it doesn't. It's, I mean, it happens off panel, but she definitely does do it. And oh, so, yeah. Yeah, I liked it. I liked it. I, I thought uh, the artwork is pretty good. Um, Vosberg's work, uh, even if you just see it on the Who's Who listing, to me is much better than the anchors he was given because he was mostly given Vince Coletta again. I know it's like it's gonna be super easy to bag on him. But uh I wish that he had maybe he didn't have maybe there was no way he could pencil and ink a book by himself. But I would have loved to have seen what it might have looked like had he had he inked it himself based on the Who's Who listing, which I think is gorgeous. I agree there. Uh, I will say that I think of all the inkers he had, uh, I do think the inker on issue one, uh, Robert Allen Smith, I think he served him best of yes. all the inkers he had Bob on the Smith series. Bob Smith is a great inker. Oh, he, it's, Bob, oh he, it's Bob Smith. The same uh, Bob Smith from Super Friends. Uh, yeah, gotcha. Great inker. I, I, I was going by what it said in Mike's Amazing World where it has his full yep. name. I didn't realize that's Bob Smith. So yeah, yep. I think Bob Smith did an excellent job inking him. And it's, it's really... I mean, it's a, it's a great looking book. I mean, it's really good. The panel design is great, which would be Os- Bosberg, obviously. The inking looks great. The faces look sharp. It's really, really well done. The the Mygorgs look like reptile creatures in there. Uh, it, it's a very engaging book that I enjoy quite a bit. 
And uh, I, I'm, as I said, I'm not really a fantasy guy. So, and by the way, we, we mentioned Red Sonja at the top. I forgot to mention it. Red Sonja, by the way, came out in 1973. So this is clearly trying, and, and they knew this. Uh, the writers and artists knew that they were trying to capture the heat coming off of Red Sonja. No, no pun intended. But they, uh, they knew full well that that series was really popular, and so they were trying to find something like that for DC. And you can feel that. Again, the sorcery stuff is there. They, they call it science, but there is some sorcery, yada, yada, whatever. But uh, I found that this particular issue had enough mixture of science and sword that uh, I liked that mixture. It was, it, was, it was a lot for me. Yeah, I wasn't a big fan of the design of uh, whatever, what's the name of the guy that, uh, that, that she falls in love with? Dagon. Uh, Dagon. He looks like a, he looks like a, like a court jester or something. Uh, I wasn't a big fan of that. That design looked kind of goofy. I don't think he really kind of fit with the rest of the world. I am. I mean, as we'll see, as you know, went through the rest of the series, he, after he sort of rescues her and sort of, you know, he makes a move on her and everybody does because Starfire is super hot and every man that she runs into is going to try and make a move on her. That felt a little icky to me because he's because he teaches her how to be a, how to survive. And he, you know, he's kind of like a father figure to her a little. And then he puts the moves on her, which is like, mm, but you know, again, that's not to be unexpected in, in this, in this crazy world that we've got going here. Uh, I'm glad. Uh, well, that he- it, can I address that real quick before yes. we move on? Uh, of all the ickiness and, and, and we can talk about that at some point here. Yeah. Well, uh, there's a lot of it and we'll get to that in a second. I felt like this was the one that was the least offensive to me because like he's genuinely cares for her. And he genuinely is trying to teach her the ways of the world. And he's, he's a good guy for a long time. He doesn't make a pass at her or anything. But they do genuinely both fall in love with each other. And then what happens is she, she almost dies. And the, the, they're ter- they, she, she survives and they're staring at each other. And they, they mutually come in to kiss. I don't feel like he pounced on her. So I do feel like this was more of a genuine romance than what we're going to see in later issues. Uh, yeah, I agree. I can see what you're saying. Uh, I mean, it's not, it's not like he... He rescues her when she's a kid and raises her, but I just, it just right. He wasn't grooming her. Yeah, no. But every guy, as we'll see across the series, oh, every guy God. is trying to bed. Uh, but of course, that would happen with Sonya too. Uh, and I'm and I'm glad that they kill him off because you don't need him. It's it's her story. Uh, mm-hmm. You don't need him. So I'm glad that you know they dispatch him. And uh, yeah, the action wise, the action is pretty good. Um, there's a lot of panel. Like there's there's a lot going on in this story. I think Michelini tried to cram a lot. I mean, this was back when the average comic book was 17 pages. So Mm -hmm. half the book was ads and you had to really fit in a ton of story. And so I wish there had been some room for some bigger panels, maybe a few more action shots, but uh, Vosberg has a lot, a lot of story to tell. So they just, it's a lot of kind of tiny panels and stuff, which is fine. But overall, right. I, didn't, I, I didn't think about that. That's a good point. Yeah, But overall a, a good setup, you know, I mm-hmm. mean, it's, it does what it introduces the character, introduces the world, uh, introduces the conflicts that she's going to face. It's got all these alien races. Then there's even like a letters page explaining everything. Uh, I mean, overall a pretty successful first issue. I would say. Yeah, the letters page is interesting because it specifically says this comic is not about women's liberation, which obviously was a hot, hot, hot topic in 1976. It says it's for people with an open mind. It says Starfire is a woman who has just had her, her own mind open and she has to overcome her learned behavior basically as a slave during her upbringing. So she's faced with learning about the realities of the world while also leading the rebellion to free the enslaved populace. So it's telling you the story is going to be about her unlearning what she learned and having to accept this new world and learn about it. That's what it, and that's definitely what issue one is about. And they tell you that's what the book is going to be about. 
I would say that that plot thread is completely lost by the first panel of issue two. Um, <laughs> by issue two, she's just full on warrior lady. And that is any, any of the development as far as, you know, her trying to figure out the way of the world and all that, that's done. And she's uh, straight on from two through eight. She is just the warrior, uh, the, the warrior leader. And that's great. It's a great character, but I just mean like the, the whole learning about the world thing, that's over. With the exception of the Steve Englehart issues, uh, it seems every single issue features at least one male character trying to not just seduce her, a lot of times just straight up rape her. Um, now, in each case, their attempts are foiled, and it's usually by Starfire herself. And I, I get what the writers were probably going for, right? You know, in the 1970s, they're probably thinking having Starfire thwart the sexual advances was like empowering for her as a female lead. I would say it probably would have been more empowering to just not even have that happen um, and, and have her just as a strong character that people followed. But because it gets really icky, it gets really bad. It happens over and over. And just you guys think I'm lecherous. I, I don't hold a candle to these folks in these comics, man. It's uh, it's pretty gross. That's a high bar you've set for yourself, Shay. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and it, I don't think it helped that as of issue seven, uh, they she ditches that costume I just talked about and change, changes changes it in for basically a bikini top, uh, which is the what you see in the Husu listing. And to me, it's like well, they were leaning into it even heavier of like let us show as much skin as we can. Now, to be fair, a lot of the male characters are showing a lot of skin because this is one of those worlds. This is one of those. Barbar- I mean, Conan shows a lot of skin, so this is just sort of par for the course uh, for story set in this world. But it did feel a little like, geez, you know, now we're just Every time, every panel is a chance to show a, a gorgeous woman with large breasts in a bikini top, and it feels a little like, mm, all right, maybe you could have left the other costume in, and but you know, obviously, I think sales were probably flagging a little, so they're doing whatever they could to spark some interest. Well, it's practically a bikini bottom too. Um, yeah. And so, all right, actually, look at, if you can look at the cover to issue six because this is this is the weird thing to me. In issue six, Vosberg gives her a whole new costume, and it actually covers quite a bit. Um, it covers the midriff. It's, it's basically like a, uh, I don't know, a top with a scoop neck and like a, a skirt and then really high, high, high leg boots or thigh high leg boots and a giant cape. And it's a pretty cool sort of regal costume. Still has the green kind of thing going on. Still has kind of the snake pattern thing. I really like that cover in the issue, uh, costume on the issue six. Then issue seven, <laughs> literally the costume gets snagged on a rusty nail. I'm not making this up. Yep. The costume yep. gets na- snagged on a rusty nail and rips off, and all she's left with is what you see in the Who's Who entry, which is just a top and, and little tiny shorts, like a bikini, like we said. And, in fact, in issue seven, it's it's like a chainmail top, just like Red Sonia. Mm-hmm. By issue eight, it's just cloth, like you see in the, in the uh, Who's Who entry. But it's, it was very frustrating to me because it was just like, yeah, that's – that's ridiculous what they've ended her up with. And again, the, the, the costume in issue six, I felt it was a great alternative. If you're not going to give her the classic costume, which is the best, then the one on the cover number six is a great one to use. But. One, other, uh, one other difference between, uh, I mean, again, the chainmail top screams Red Sonia. Yeah. But, but one thing they did change up is that by the time we get to the final issue, which is the one I'm going to be recapping, she is no longer kind of the lone warrior of the wasteland. She's got this band of people that are carry, that are that are charging with her. Her whole, you know, the the supporting characters. If they if they had chose to, they could have done a uh, Starfire supporting characters page in Who's Who. <laughs> um, and but, who would that feature? Yeah, yeah. Well, Thump. It would have Thump <laughs> uh, and uh, some other people. But Moonwatcher. Moonwatcher. But uh, you know, yeah. I mean, it, you could see that by later issues, 
I think the writers, whether it be Engelhardt or, or uh, Tom DeFalco, we'll talk about in a second, were kind of like heading down a formula that they, more writers were familiar with, giving her other characters to bounce off of as opposed to writing like a Conan or Red Sonja who's sort of having to always monologue because they're always by themselves. Yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. And it, it is funny, though, because like originally she, by issue, I don't know, three or four, she ends up building an entourage of about four or five guys. And then you get to issue six, and I guess Engelhardt's like, screw it. And he murders all of them except for two of them. <laughs> you know, she builds up more by issue eight. So she, yep. again, she, she continually surrounding herself. But it's just like each writer's like, nah, I don't want to do what they were doing. So it's kind of interesting. Uh, I, I want to mention this because I know Dr. Ange uh, will be thrilled. He's probably read this series already. But the letter column of issue two, it, 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 they still don't have letters by that point. So they spend this whole time laying out the whole history of sword and sorry epics in DC Comics. They talk about Showcase featuring Nightmaster. They talk about that a lot. They talk about the Beowulf comic. They talk about Claw the Unconquered. They talk about Stalker. They talk about Warlord. I mean, it's all the stuff that Sword and Sorcery people love. And it basically lays that out as that's all the history that led us to today to the Starfire, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, I like those text pieces. Uh, that, that's a lost art, those things. Yeah, really so is. I enjoy them, especially, again, when it's, it's a new series. And it was, they were very trying to get, you know, like trying to get to know the writers and stuff. And, of course, David Michelini was also writing Claw the Unconquered yep. at the same time. And that will kind of come into play uh, in a little bit. But, I mean, he was, he was very familiar with writing this kind of epic. And, in fact, in the Beck Issue article that I mentioned earlier, when he says that he left Starfire, he thinks it might have been because he was already doing Claw and just felt like, well, I'm kind of writing two books that are very similar. And I guess he preferred Claw over Starfire. So that's the one he stuck with. Now, they both ended up being canceled. Right. So it didn't make much of a difference, but nevertheless. Yeah. Now, they didn't get canceled the implosion. They just got. No. No, they canceled. got canceled. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, they, yep. So we, just to rattle off all the names real quick, so we're about to get into issue eight, the final issue. But So you get four writers. You get David Michelini does a couple issues. You get Elliot S. Magnin, uh, Elliot S. Magnin, who writes a few issues. Then you get Steve Engelhart that writes two issues. And then you get Tom DeFalco, Tom DeFalco, to write the final issue. And over the course, they run across three editors as well. They start with Joe Orlando. And by the way, halfway into the series is when uh, Jeanette Kahn started with the company. So I wonder what she thought of this book. That'd be really interesting. But anyway, so you get Joe Orlando, you get Jack C. Harris, and then you end with the last issue with Denny O'Neill. And I, I don't did you get the sense of that back issue article that uh, Vosberg wasn't too happy with Denny O'Neill? Oh, definitely. I think he, yeah. he was pretty upfront about it. Yeah. It, it basically just says, like, he didn't trash talk Denny, but he basically just said, uh, you, you didn't get any feedback from Denny unless you were, like, part of his pet projects. I was like, wow. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yep. Uh, yeah. And, and, uh, well, all right. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I just realized what you were going to say. You know what? People can just listen to, uh, mountain comics for the rest of that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank you very much. So, <laughs> Great um, interview with Joe Duffy folks. If you haven't heard it yet, Holy crap. Go listen to, uh, fire. Uh, was it FW, FW presents? presents. Yeah. Mountain, mountain comics, comics number 33. Yeah. The interview with Joe Duffy. Yeah. She was a blast. Wow. Great yeah. job, Rob. That was Thank awesome. You. She was great. So, all right, well, let's talk about, uh, I, I thought, let's jump ahead and do it to the final issue, and we can see how different this book became over the course of just eight issues. So we're going to talk about Starfire number eight. This was cover dated October, November 1977. On sale July 12th, 1977. 35 cents was the cover price. Damn inflation. And it was written by <laughs> Tom DeFalco, as Shag just said, drawn by Mike Valsberg and Vince Coletta. Uh, the, story is, the story title is The Dwellers of the Dark Domain. After Starfire and her friends help a small band of people fight off the Mygorg, 
Uh, she tries to enjoin them to fight in the war, but they resist, saying too many of uh, this band of people are children or elderly and therefore cannot fight. Starfire agrees, but is convinced that nowhere on the planet is truly safe from the war. But then she is told that there is a place simply called the Haven, an island where the Mygorg or Yorg do not dwell. The village elder is killed by a giant spider, and he gives the totem he is carrying to Starfire, saying she should lead everyone to the Haven. On the way, Starfire and the group discover an underground city populated by people driven underground by the Mygorg. Starfire dines with the leader of the city named Mabor, who tells her that there is an artifact known as the Eye of Armageddon, which opened up the portal to this world that allowed the Mygorg to invade. Since destroying it could defeat the Mygorg, Starfire angrily asks why Mabor has not tried to do so. He argues that that would have meant losing lives, so he and his people choose to flee underground. Starfire is disgusted by what she perceives as Mabor's cowardice and begins to argue, only to find out too late that she and her friends have been drugged. She wakes up in chains, and Mabor says that he cannot risk too many refugees from the surface coming to the city. So Starfire will either choose to stay with him as his bride, or she and her friends will be killed. It takes Starfire about two seconds to reject that offer, kicking Mabor in the face and freeing herself. After rescuing her friends from a Roman Colosseum-style death at the hands of another giant spider, Starfire tells her friends that she now knows that there just might be a chance to make their world free after all. Okay, so Shag, what did you think of the final issue of Starfire? Uh, I did struggle with it because, again, sword and sorcery, not my bag. Uh, in fact, I actively dislike sword and sorcery. But there, there's enough science in the beginning and in the first act that it caught, kept my attention. But overall, this felt like it could have been easily, if you just changed the, any, any reference to science, call it sorcery and said, this could have been a Conan comic. This could have been a Red Sony. This could have been any typical sword and sorcery comic. So I, I didn't love it, but I didn't hate it either. It's, uh, definitely, I like the earlier parts, and I like the Engelhart issues, I think, uh, is, is more where my love of this comes from. DeFalco, at least in this instance, is definitely borrowing from a lot of sci-fi concepts that were flying around, Planet of the Apes, Logan's Run. I mean, this is a war-torn world that's been ravaged you know, by war and, and stuff, and yet there's an underground city that is you know, light years ahead of what we even have now technologically. Uh, and you're somehow, well, how, how does this city run? Well, because it just does. Uh, that's <laughs> just the way you have to get it. Um, that's I, why I say sorcery could have just been substituted. Right, exactly. Um, I will say the idea that there is this, um, this eye of uh, Armageddon, which is supposedly this portal um, that was used by these high priests, high priests that opened up the portal and it allowed the Mygorg to come in and invade. That's kind of a big deal in terms of what you're adding to the Starfire mythos. And it's basically explained in one panel. Mm-hmm. Not, not only that, a tiny panel, like a tiny little posted side, posted stamp sized panel. And I had to read it a couple of times. I'm like, wait, what? Eh, what? And, you know, because it's, and it's such a, it's such a big idea to throw into the series. And yet it's dropped in the book with almost like no afterthought. Like, it's just like, oh yeah, there's this portal and uh, if you take that, uh, if you take this artifact and open the portal, that can kill all the Mygorgs. You're like, wow, that's kind of a big thing. And it's just really blown by very quickly. Well, she does make a big deal about an issue in, on page 13, right before they're all knocked out from the drugs. She's like, what? The Mygorg can be defeated? And then, of course, she does the shout out at the end. So I feel like uh, DeFalco, who thought he was going to be on this book for a while, right. I felt like he was laying the seeds for the next quest. Right. So I, I mean, right. We have to, right. You have to do, we have to take it into acknowledgement that yes, he thought the series was going to keep going 
after this. All right, I just got to ask, because uh, you mentioned it in the Who's Who uh, flashback we played a little while earlier. On her new costume, is her breasts have a connector on that ho- on that top or not? Because like sometimes Vosberg draws it looks like it's connected in the middle. Other times it's just like her breasts are floating independently of each other. I don't know. Yeah, on the uh, in the Who's Who listing, there is they definitely are not connected, and then some panels it looks like they are, and other times it, they're sometimes they're separated, and other times they look like a bikini top. Um, I mean, they're definitely going for a little bit of the good girl art, like where she's trussed up in, in ropes. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's definitely a lot of people's fetish. Um, there's a panel of them in silhouette where he's like, enough of that, Starfire. I have you two choices, a grisly death such as I prepared for your friends or life. When my eyes first beheld you, your beauty struck me like a sword. And like this, just the silhouette of her looks like something you would see on those mud flaps on trucks. You know, <laughs> So they're definitely leaning into that um, quite a bit. I will say, and I'm sorry, I keep, I don't mean to keep picking on this, but like to me, Vince Coletta, just like his work yeah. has no real, um, when he drew, even when he drew beautiful women, it had, when he inked it, it had no sexual energy uh, at all. And so I think whatever, whatever Vosberg was trying to put across with Starfire was kind of deadened by the, to me, the indifferent inking. Um, so it would have been interesting to see if, again, if Vosberg had uh, done this himself. Also, like the spider just looked like a rubber spider you'd buy at the dollar store. And I put that yeah. down to Vince, uh, Coletta's yeah. inking. I really do. Yeah. It's I, I do want to say complete props to Wonder Woman for stopping the 50-foot-tall woman with the Twinkies. I think that was really well played. It was an uh, right? interesting, interesting diversion of the story, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. I, I liked it, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I felt like, you know, if we look at the series as a whole – I liked the direction Engelhart was taking it. Um, I liked the, some of the seeds DeFalco planted here for the next quest and stuff. Uh, I liked it, the, uh, the aliens subplot that started in this issue where that could have gone. Yeah, so that, I, right. There's a, that's a real sci-fi element. There's, there's, there's three panels where an alien shows up and blasts like a cheetah or something. And of course, we'll never know what happened to that because the book got canceled. Right. So I like, again, the sci- throwing the sci-fi stuff in there catches my interest and made me want to know more. So, uh, yeah, I mean, again, there's a lot to really like about the series. It's it, like it, it does get a little formulaic, like especially on like, I don't know, issue three or four. It felt like, OK, this could be any generic sword and sorcery quest comic. It really can. But then there's moments where things really shine. And by the way, I figured out who the priests look like. Remember the priest? Uh, like you said uh, her, her Dagon, her boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And then uh, and the priests show up again here in issue eight. They look like um, remember uh, Stefan Wolf? looked in the original Kirby days, like sort oh, of ridiculous. Sure. looks a little bit like that in some okay. different color scheme. Oh, some of the designs here, uh, the guy, the uh, Maybor, the mayor of this, he looks like a record producer from the 1970s. He's got these he sort does. of mirrors, mirrored glasses. And, you know, I get, imagine he's like a, 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 asking for more cowbell or something. <laughs> uh, he's really got that uh, look to him. By the way, one of the well, things... A, a mu- the mustache plays a big part in that. Yeah. One of the things that was mentioned in the um, the back issue article, and you see a little bit of that here, there's a letters page, and there's three letters, and one of them is by a woman. They uh, DC figured out that this book had like a 30% female readership, mm-hmm. uh, which was very high for the time. So obviously, uh, whatever w- girls, women out that were out there reading comics in the 70s, this managed to capture uh, a, a higher percentage of that audience uh, than what most comics were. I mean, the DC was still publishing romance comics at the time, but they were on their way out. But here, uh, you know, they, they this, this thing was probably tr- somewhat getting to do the thing they wanted it to do, 
which was generate a little bit of that Conan Red Sonja heat. Uh, again, we'll never know. Maybe the fact that it was bi-monthly, they gave it a whole year, and they just realized, all right, even after a year, this thing isn't going anywhere. So they just dropped it. But again, it was obviously dropped very arbitrarily because, man, the damn thing has the Nixon issue on sale blurb at the bottom. So even when they wrapped this issue up, they thought it was going to go on. And that also makes me think, is there a Starfire number nine out there that we hmm. never saw? Because by this point, if they were working on issue number eight to the point where they were getting it ready to be printed, they had to have had number nine at least started. Uh, with, a, with a bi-monthly process, it, at the very least, the script or, or the plot should have been written. Yeah, I would think something, so. Something. Yeah. So there might be some, you know, it's probably lost to the midst of time, but uh, at the very least, some form of Starfire number nine exists somewhere. And it would have been, yeah, it would have been interesting to see where it had gone with it. It's in, is it is, is this thing like going to change the world in terms of you know if you never have I ever read a comic like this before? No, you've read a lot of comics like this, but when you look at it from the context of 1976, 77, DC was trying to do new things. They were trying to like smash different genres together and see what worked. And there was enough here uh, that I thought this would have been interesting to keep going. And maybe Starfire could have been brought back. Uh, and in, I mean, a lot of characters have been brought back from DC mm-hmm. over the decades. Uh, Starfire deserves more than the ignominy that, that she's got. At this point. Well, we will talk about a couple of appearances she made since then. Yes. But I, I do want to say, you know, Vosberg Unleashed, though, uh, I, I forgot to mention this earlier. Like if, if you're still looking at issue eight, look at the, the second page. There's a, a, an incredible splash page of Starfire leaping from uh, like a rocky hiding place and just shooting down the bad guys. And he did this a lot in some of the later issues where the, the second page would use the splash page very effectively to be a really amazing action piece. And uh, that, that's a huge credit to Vosberg for doing this. I mean, just gorgeous, gorgeous work. And um, it, you really can, even, even with Vince's inks, it still conveys the action. You still feel the movement. It looks great. Yep. I should mention his career, Mike Vosberg. I mean, he went on to do a lot of comic book stuff, but he also did a lot of movie work. And that ended up being uh, probably more of his career. He did a lot of storyboards and stuff like that. And in fact, in the back issue article, he sort of says had Starfire really taken off, I might have never gone into the movie business and he kind of regrets that. You know, it would have been like, maybe that would have been a good thing. Uh, <laughs> but he did work on Savage She-Hulk, Sisterhood of Steel, G.I. Joe. He did. He drew issues of American Flag for Howard Chicken, and he drew the final two issues of First Issue Special, our beloved First Issue Special. Oh, wow, that's right. That's right. So what about Michelini? So I, like him, for me, I always think of his Star Wars work and his amazing Spider-Man work with Tom McFarlane. Like, he's done a million other things, though, right? Yes. He has, if you go to uh, his page on Mike's Amazing World, he has over 500 story credits. Uh, mm. He's written everything under the sun. He, uh, he is the writer who killed off Arthur Jr. Ooh. in uh, Adventure Comics because he took over the Aquaman strip at the, end of, uh, at the end of that run in Adventure Comics. He's written Swamp Thing, House of Secrets. Of course, he had a long run on Star Wars, as you just mentioned. He had a long run on Iron Man, on the Avengers, Amazing Spider-Man, Action Comics, and he co-created a character some of you might have heard of, Venom. Right, So, yeah. uh, boy, in the last couple of months, a couple of his creations have been in movies. He's got Taskmaster and Venom. And I think he co-created Carnage, too. I can't be sure. I don't exactly know about that one. But, man, he's, he's having a good couple of months. <laughs> Hopefully he's getting some creator bank off that. I, I hope, hope so. so. Yeah. Yeah. 
So let's talk about where Starfire went after this. So again, eight issues, and that's pretty much it. However, she's had smaller appearances in places. For example, there was a comic in 1978, so a year later, called Star Hunters. And issue number seven was the last issue. Uh, it was also written by Michelini. And there's this... He, I don't really claim to understand it because I didn't read the whole issue. But he goes into, I don't know, like a, a vision. He has this vision of the universe, this guy named Flint. And while he's having this vision, he sees both Starfire and Claw the Unconquered. And they are revealed to be, and I quote, eternal champions of the Sornai, whatever that means, hmm. uh, on, a, on a world called Pytheria, which is like Earth. And uh, it, it, what it's implying is that Claw and... Um, Starfire existed on the same planet, which is sort of interesting. And I, uh, I think that's a that's a fun touch. No, it is, especially you know they're both signed kind of the same time. The creator's the same, and so but Star Hunters, much like other uh, these other series we're talking about, got canceled on a cliffhanger, so that never really got resolved. Then uh, she doesn't show up again until that Who's Who entry, which is the whole reason we're talking about it here today, because we, that completely captivated our interest. It's an amazing entry, gorgeous art, really compelling writing, other than the Mygorg and Gorg references. Then she doesn't show up again until 2010, uh, at least in a, in a, in a major role. I, I'll, I'll touch on a couple of things. So in 2010, there's a series called Time Masters Vanishing Point, and it was a Dan Jurgens project. It ran parallel to the Batman stuff. Like I don't know if you know about all this. Batman died in Final Crisis. He got better, by the way. Spoilers. And he ends up jumping through time. And he, like, he gets cast back in time. He goes through history and is all a Grant Morrison motivated thing. But Dan Jurgen's series sort of ran adjacent to that where they were trying to find Batman. Well, in there, uh, you got Rip Hunter, you got Booster Gold, you got Superman, Hal Jordan. And they're traveling through time trying to find Batman. They never do find him because that's all in the Grant Morrison story. But they end up on a world where they encounter both Starfire and Claw the Unconquered. And they actually spend several issues with both Claw and Starfire. Uh, there's a great shot I, I shared here with Rob of Starfire standing over Booster Gold. She's got a sword to his throat, and uh, she's threatening his life. And in in, uh, in in the fashion of all the Starfire issues, Booster's making incredibly uh, gross comments about seducing her right then and there. So that's in the in the keeping with the series. But yeah, so she's uh, you know definitely handled by uh, Dan Jurgens' pencil, which is rather nice. Yeah, that was an I'd never seen that. That was a it was a nice uh, nice illustration. I went ahead and read the whole series. Uh, it was six issues long. It's on the DC app if you want it, guys. Again, it's Time Masters, uh, Vanishing Point. It's not bad. Um, it's not great either. It's it's sort of a occupier, if we were to use Paul Hicks' language. Uh, it, it, it fills a story need, but it's didn't. It's not going to change your life. So in there, uh, Starfire is battling a sorceress named Skyly, who, even though she looks completely different as far as visually, like she doesn't have the same color hair, but she seems really, really, really similar to Lady Jin who was the big villain in the Engelhardt issues. Uh, instead of having red hair, she's, got, she's blonde, but it, it really feels like the same character. They feel like they know each other. It feels like there's a history. The clothes look kind of similar. Then after that, um, she appeared again in a vision in the Commandy Challenge, number 12. And then there are two other references to her, which but she didn't really feature. So I just want to reference them. And there was an issue of Swamp Thing in 1996 where both Starfire and Claw were... Uh, were involved it had to do with nightmaster and how apparently nightmaster had sort of uh created them it's it's a little hard to understand from just reading the wikipedia entry and ultimately it says this was never referenced again so i'm not sure that it's considered in continuity but uh she got referenced at least and then in starman number 55 from 1999 uh robinson did this really clever thing where jack knight and mikhail thomas the other starman supposedly saved starfire from a space pirate 
But the way they do it in the story, they do three different flashbacks told by three different people, Space Cabbie, Space Ranger, and Ultra, the Mm multi-alien. And all three of them tell the same story. But in each version, it's a different Starfire. In one version, it's our Starfire. And another one is Coriander. And the other one, it's Red Star from the Teen Titans. So it's pretty funny. A great concept there. I like that idea. That's fun. But that's, that's really all that she's had. And again, that Vanishing Point comic, while it was entertaining, it didn't do justice to uh, the Starfire legacy and where it could have gone, I think. I think that's it, man. Uh, are we missing anything that we've forgotten about? I don't, I don't think so. I mean, she has she is yet to make an appearance in any Arrowverse show, which seems to be the fate of a lot of these obscure characters. <laughs> give it time, everybody. David Michelini, in that back issue article, which, by the way, if you want to read it, it's back issue number 54. If you don't have the hard copy, you can buy it on their website, which is what I did, because I, I have a lot of back issues, but I wasn't buying around that time. So I bought the, I think it cost me like four bucks for the PDF, I, and it's great. I was reading all these other articles in it last night, too. Anyway, uh, in the interview, David Michelini says that he had, uh, he had hoped to do an homage to a Michael Moorcock graphic novel idea that was going to bring Claw together with Flint from Star Hunters, Starfire, and Jonah Hex all in one graphic novel. So he had an idea for that, but he left DC before he could try and make that happen. That would have been a hoot. Has he? I don't know if he's... Well, no, he did come back to DC to do action comics, but for the most part, he stayed at Marvel uh, and and other related companies, I think, once he left DC in the 70s. Well, he's... I mean, Marvel did him very well in that yes. era. So, yeah, I imagine so. Yep. So, Rob, as we reach the end here, the Starfire portion, as we always ask, was this worth the deeper dive or was the best part the Who's Who entry? I, I think I would, like I said, I really would have loved to see this book drawn by Vosberg inking himself because I think art-wise, the best, li- the best Starfire is the listing. Uh, in who's who that said i i enjoyed these quite a bit i thought they were fun yeah they're very derivative of a lot of things but who cares uh and uh yeah so i i enjoyed them i i thought they were were worthwhile read yeah i thought they were fun it's definitely worth going just beyond the who's who entry it's not they weren't a dud they weren't boring i was i was never bored uh so they're definitely i mean is it balloon buster i mean come on nothing's balloon buster uh (laughs) but it was definitely worth the deeper dive and it was a lot of fun and again it's worth it if nothing else it's worth it for the vosberg art and you know we talked about the the writers and how it's kind of over the place but i mean guys it's still david michelini it's still tom defalco it's still elliot s Magan. it's still steve engelhart these are amazing writers so yeah, it's absolutely worth your time, folks. Check it out. You can. It's not available on any apps or anywhere. You'd have to buy the issues, but you can get. You, you can find them. They, uh, you know, Rob found them on eBay. I'm sure they're not until they appear on the Arrowverse. It won't be too expensive. Yeah, they were. The, I, I got the set for Shag, and they, they were not expensive. <laughs> Rob's not going to spend much money on me. Are you kidding? No. no. <laughs> All right. Well, that's Starfire. So, uh, Rob, I think right now we're going to take a podcast promo break, and when we come back, we are going to cover your feedback on our beloved Balloon Buster. Stellar Studios presents an Into the Weird and a World on Fire production. Starring in alphabetical order, Brainwave Jr., Fury, Jade, Northwind, Nuclon, Obsidian, The Silver Scarab, The Star Spangled Kid. These are the members of Infinity Inc., the protégés and children of the legendary Justice Society. Created by Roy Thomas, Jerry Ordway, and Mike Macklin, their 1980s adventures are chronicled at last by Herman Lowe and Billy Dee. 
to podcasters with way too much time on their hands, but dedicated to analyzing, glorifying, and sometimes vilifying the stories from the team's first series. So hop in your Star Rocket Racer, switch on the radio, and let's rediscover the Earth 2 we'd all like to go back to. Star Rocket Radio, an Infinity Inc. podcast. Soaring through the Pottersphere since September 2021. There's something like 115,000 English language podcasts in the world, and no doubt hundreds of them are aimed at the comic book genre. There are sci-fi comic podcasts. Horror comic podcasts. War comic podcasts! But do you know what we need? Two guys crazy enough to combine those fields and make a podcast of their very own? Yes. It's the answer to a question no one asked, so that's why we are answering it. Such a gaping hole in the podcast landscape must be filled post-haste. Did you really just use the word post-haste? The Weird Warriors podcast covers the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. Along the way, we'll also check out other horror and war comics published by DC, Marvel, Charlton, and any other targets that may present themselves to us. I have the war books, and he has the horror books. So if you're ready to take a nice, relaxing look at the hell of war in comic book form from the age of the caveman to the distant future, then report for duty by subscribing to the Weird Warrior Podcast, brought to you by the Brothers Flea, wherever fine podcasting provisions are issued. Vampires. Aliens. Dinosaurs. Alien dinosaurs. There's something for everyone. General Sherman said war is hell, but do you know what else is? weird for our purposes yes so tune in to the weird warrior podcast today do it that's an order yes sir don't call me sir i work for a living but we're not getting paid for this Dang. well i'm max and i'm rich and we're going to be bringing you the weird warriors podcast where we will promise to make war no more and now it's time for Who's Who, How's and Why's on Balloon Buster. As a reminder, we're just pulling your comments from our website and email. So if you want to be heard on the next Who's That, make sure you leave the comment on our website. What's that website, Rob? Fireandwaterpodcast.com. Or send us an email. All right, folks. First one is from Symbol Pending. Symbol Pending runs the Power Girl blog called Symbol Pending. Surprise at that. They said, I can't help feeling that this is the perfect podcast for Valentine's Day. <laughs> it was a February release. So good point. <laughs> Uh, we got a comment from Steve Givens, who you've heard on this uh, on the network a bunch of times lately. He says, uh, the first issue of Who's Who I purchased was Who's Who Volume 2. I was uh, nine years old at the time, and it jump-started my full-on transformation into a comic book reader and collector. Obviously, I was initially drawn to the Bat characters featured in the issue, as well as George Perez's wonderful cover, and the Black Canary entry sparked my longtime crush on that character. However, when I reread the issue, I always stopped to examine the Balloon Buster entry. I suppose I was mostly responding to the Joe Kubert art because this is this entry is one of the more prominent ones in my memory of reading the series. And like you guys, it's a character I'd never heard of until encountering him in Who's Who. His appearance in Crisis was the only other time I read a story with him in it. Looking back at the entry, I appreciate how it is the perfect marriage between the main image and the serpent. You guys nailed it when you said it looks though looks as though Savage is slow walking away from an explosion. Here, <laughs> adds a measure of dyna, dynamism. Dynamism. I have a tough time saying that word. That otherwise wouldn't be there if the main image was presented by itself. 
Also, I can see the same shades of Owen Wilson that Shag mentions in this depiction of Balloon Buster, but should Warner Brothers ever do a live-action version of the character, I hope they keep Owen Wilson far, far away from it. I don't readily know who I would cast in the role, but I don't see anything in Wilson's body of work that would indicate he could do anything with the character but play him as a loudmouthed buffoon making unfunny quips in a whiny twang. Wow. Well, this, w- this was before Loki aired, to be well, fair. Steve, Steve Gibbons, <laughs> not a fan of Owen Wilson, but yes, that's right. He has since appeared uh, on the Loki show. Maybe Steve has changed his mind, or it's even less likely now because now that he's part of the Marvel family, uh, he, they're not going to let him go ever to go to a, uh, in the very unlikely scenario, there'll be a Bloom Bluster TV show or movie. Uh, it's unlikely he will get away from Marvel. I'm sure Marvel has him locked up. I don't know. J.K. Simmons seems to bounce back and forth. Th- there are some actors that bounce back. Obviously, Josh Brolin managed to play Thanos and Jonah Hex for pizza. Right. <laughs> so uh, anyway, Dr. Ange uh, from the Supergirl blog, Colin Buck's commentary, and he's a member of the Legion Superblogger, says, another great and fun episode. I listened to the I'm the Gun podcast, so I had a decent knowledge of the character. But hearing the lineup of talent which touched this character is insane. I think I might just start yelling, I'm the gun, as my motto. Probably frowned upon in the hospital. As for, up- <laughs> as for upcoming episodes, while I will again say the 70 Starfire is a good pick, I love that series and of all the issues. Hey, look at that. Uh, I will say that Dr. Zin Zin is worth a look. The Sienkiewicz page is so boss, I naturally assumed he was a big deal. Nope. I, <laughs> I don't think we've had an episode where Ch- uh, excuse me, where Dr. Ange has not asked us to do Dr. Zin Zin. I think it's every episode he shows up in the comments to recommend them it's a, it's dr snobbery says he's yeah. only interested in seeing other doctors appear on the show <laughs> uh now in response to his, uh, to Ange running around the hospital yelling i'm the gun paul hicks suggests he yells i'm the catheter <laughs> oh, God. so that's uh paul hicks from waiting for doom and dial f for flanger so uh rob mccarthy from the hell on wheels comic strip wrote in to say you know who's who's who entry makes them way cooler than they really are Freaking it, Cobra. <laughs> uh, you're not wrong there, Rob. Uh, Cobra does look incredibly boss in every one of the Who's Who entries they've ever done for that character. They look great. Now we're from Gord Tolton from Prairie Justice, the Greg Saunders Vigilante Podcast. Uh, Gord says, when you go to the Pearl Harbor National Historic Site, you might take the option to take a bus ride over to the Pearl Harbor Aviation Museum or the USS Missouri Tour. The ride takes you across a causeway on the harbor onto Ford Island. As you ride west on the base, they will point to Luke Field. That's the runway name for the actual balloon buster, Frank Luke. You know, Rob, I went there, um, geez, 35 years ago or so. Uh, and I wish I had known. I mean, I was, I was a dumb kid. So I was just like, what are you? Doing? But uh, I wish I had known all this stuff then. It would have just been absolutely fascinating. Uh, and then Captain Entropy followed that up by uh, posting Frank Luke's Wikipedia entry. And he says he thinks DC ha- uh, borrowed very heavily from his life story. And this fascinating read, if you read through it, it's all on the website, or I guess you can read on Wikipedia as well. But uh, this guy, Frank Luke, the, the real balloon buster, is really interesting. Okay. Matt Saroy says, wow, just wow. Guys, you have made these stories a must-find and read for me. This guy is the epitome of pulp adventure hero, a maverick, pistol-packing roughneck, ready for blazing battle action. He seems like the perfect character for film serials and an action figure line. Thanks for another great episode. Wow, I've, the, the balloon buster action figure line. That's, that's ambitious, man. Uh, <laughs> you know was, they were really good comics. I, you, you, you can get the plane and you get <laughs> balloon buster. And I guess you got that French girl that he sleeps with. After that. <laughs> I, I guess any of the mail away enemy ace figure, I guess you could do that. 
Uh, you probably you probably buy like accessories to like guys who just hang onto the wing, you know, as a yeah, there you flying, go. That yeah, kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Uh, play, oh, oh, of course, and he has to have a voice chip because I'm the gun. I'm the gun. Right. Press the little button. Uh, Paul Kien, uh, who of course you've also heard across uh, these uh, across the network uh, lately, he says, "Awesome episode, guys! I was listening to the show today, sorting through some comics down in the basement." And when Shag said there was a balloon buster in the NMEA showcase, I got up and walked over, and lo and behold, I had it too. A common Woo! experience. We buy more than we can read all at once. I brought it up, and we'll read the balloon buster issues this week. That was back in February. I wonder if Paul's done it. Uh, I have read some <laughs> of the Russ Heath Sea Devils and the Kindergarten War that time forgot, though. Really fun stuff, also available in showcases. And I definitely add my vote for Starfire. I have all the issues ready for the reread. <laughs> I, I gotta say that war that time forgot showcase. I busted it out again just a couple of weeks ago uh, in preparation for an uh, episode I did with Stella. Oh my gosh, the war that time forgot is so stinking good. Oh, it's it's exceptional. I love it. I'm trying to figure out how the war in time forgot involved with Jane Eyre, but uh, we'll worry about it when we, when we get to it. Uh, <laughs> David A. Scudiero says, "Great show, guys. I'm intrigued by these balloon buster adventures." And then he had to add, Rob Kelly went to the Kubert School. Why hasn't this ever been discussed before? Thank you, David. And there's a lot of fun. Uh, Ed O'Bosnar and Michael Dinas uh, take you to task and joke about that with it, calling it the Kelly School. We're like talking that. about Joe Kubert. I mean, for the love of God. It's not like I bring it up every time. Uh, Brian Rosen. See, it made it into this episode, didn't it? Brian Rosen says, <laughs> Frank Thorne's Red Sonia makes a great case for loving redheads. You're not wrong, Brian. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, co-sign there. Nicholas Prom from Captain Freakout Psychedelic Radio says, great episode, guys. I have a fondness for this oddball character, so this was a real treat. Still waiting for a who's who on Brother Power the Geek, a character just as wonderful as Lady Cop or Ultra, the multi-alien. Nicholas, you know I love you, but Brother Power the Geek cannot shine the shoes of Lady Cop or Ultra, the multi-alien. I'm not saying he's a bad character, but he's not... He doesn't deserve to be mentioned in the same breath as those two stalwarts. So I got to argue with you there. So could we do a who's that on Lady Cop since Zoom Yukinori did a Lady Cop who's who entry? <laughs> you know, we get to, what were we going to go to podcast jail? Yes, we could if we wanted to. Sure. <laughs> All right. So then we heard Liz Ann Oswald, who has her own YouTube channel. She says the Joe Kubert art looks great as always, though that's not a great outfit to go into war in. That's, they're going to spot him a mile away. <laughs> I guess that's fair. Poor, uh, poor balloon buster isn't exactly wearing muted colors. And then uh, Liz says, Lieutenant Savage would have been a better title, as cool as balloon busters were. You know, that's, that's a fair point. At that time in history, when those comics were being published, balloon buster, you know, to me, the name meant nothing. And probably at that point in history, it probably still meant nothing. So maybe Lieutenant Savage would have been a better name. Interesting theory. Then we're from Chris Franklin from the Firewater Podcast Network. Just uh, currently doing the House of Franklinstein. He also does a show called Superman Movie Minute and many, many more. Chris says, I have honestly never read any of the solo Balloon Buster stories or even the enemy ace confrontations. But now I really want to. As much as I love Kubert, and Thorne was definitely uh, upping the Kubert factor in the stories as well, I just can't get enough of vintage Russ Heath. Just beautiful draftsmanship. And then he asks us, have I ever mentioned how I got into an argument with my college art history professor about how I thought Lichtenstein and Andy Warhol were hacks and thieves because they swiped so much comic work with no compensation? Well, I did get in that argument, and my professor actually agreed with me. He just enjoyed getting a student passionate enough to argue with him. I got the whole classroom going, and it was quite a moment. <laughs> Chris called Andy Warhol a hack. <laughs> hey, I mean, he's not wrong. You know, oh. not wrong. Roy Lichtenstein, man, 
just took comic book panels, yeah. blew them up, sold them for five million bucks a pop, and the poor bastard that drew the panel didn't get anything. So yeah, that, yeah. I, I definitely I wasn't coming to the defense of Liechtenstein. I only came to the defense of Warhol. So go yeah, ahead. Well, I wouldn't necessarily go, would be as critical of Warhol, but Liechtenstein he could have cut a lot of checks to some people and it wouldn't mm-hmm. have made lives different. So yeah, uh, screw you, Robert Lichtenstein. So <laughs> thank you, Chris. I would have liked to have seen that, uh, that discussion. Um, it not, Bo- not, a, not a sentence that's uttered often. Uh, no, on, on, you don't hear that a lot. No, you really don't. Ado <laughs> Bosnar says, this was a fascinating episode. I've never heard of Balloon Buster before and I don't think I'll be rushing out to track down the stories. You've at least got me interested. He did indeed have a top-notch stable of creators working on his stories. The samples on the gallery page look fantastic. By the way, I'm not sure what to make of the fact that the panels with the banged-up balloon buster reminded Shag of Daredevil, the movie, rather than the actual issue of Daredevil that the scene is based on, i.e. number 191. Otherwise, yeah, my comment about the Electoral College back in June didn't age well. I feel like I should apologize. P.S. I almost forgot. Ultra, the multi-alien. Uh, <laughs> Makes everything Ado, better. Ado works that into every show that I'm involved with at this point. <laughs> the man knows how to get his comment right on the air. That's right. <laughs> and we're from Martin Gray from the Two Dangerous for a Girl blog. Martin says, there's no doubt these stories had great art, but the dialogue. I tried reading the pages on the gallery, but between Balloon Buster's Yeehaw Twang and the German guy's Gott in Heimel accent and the French girl's business, it was too much. I can't bear phonetic dialogue. Mine, Chris Claremont, would kill to write these strips. <laughs> Then he, uh, and then that actually leads into a massive dis- a discussion between Gord Tolton, uh, Siskoid, Mike Dynas, uh, and all and Martin Gray, all about French accents and uh, Canada and stuff like that. It's pretty interesting. It's out there on the website. Check that, folks. And then he says, "I wonder." Uh, this is Martin Gray again. So I wonder if Balloon Buster ever met Captain X of the RAF. That would almost count as a Firestorm team up. That's true because Captain X got revealed to be Ronnie Raven's grandfather. Hmm. All right. Then we heard from Cisco from the Firewater Podcast Network. Does shows such as Zero Hour Strikes, and right now he's doing a mini series called "Who's Hot and Who's Not" with the Ohatmo Girls, all about who's who, which is awesome. Cisco says, "I don't think I'm wrong when I say that 1927 seminal war film Wings has balloon busting action." Awesome. I'm gonna have to check that out. He is right and about that. that. I've I did a film and water on that. He's absolutely correct. Oh, fantastic. And then uh, he, he gave a link to his own recap of Balloon Buster in his own Who's That entries on his blog over on Cisco's blog at Geekery. Yep. Yeah, by the way, everybody, Wings is a terrific movie. It's a silent film. A lot of people have a tough time with silent films, but it's, a, it's an absolutely terrific movie, and uh, it's worth checking out. Mm-hmm. Um, Mike Dynas says, what a fantastic episode, gentlemen. I'd love to hear your take on these obscure characters. And, oh, boy, Balloon Buster was quite the obscure character for me. I really shied away from war comics as a kid, so aside from the occasional Sergeant Rock ad, I really don't know any of these war characters. But after hearing your joy in discovering these Balloon Buster adventures and the sheer magnitude of talent involved, it makes me want to go read these stories. Well done. I can't wait to hear who's next. Keep up the great work. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. You know, I got to say, of the who's next that we've done, the, the oddball ones really have been my favorites. You know, um, I, like, for example, we keep talking about Balloon Buster. Uh, and then we did, oh, gosh, I'm blanking. Oh, no. Oh, well. Help me out. What, what's been your favorites that we've been covered on? Who's that so far? Uh, I, the Balloon Buster one was a lot of fun. Uh, we did, what else? We, we did Johnny Thunder, I believe. Oh, that was that the other one that we loved so yeah, much. Love Johnny Thunder. That one was really great. We did not cover Johnny Thunder. 
<laughs> oh, we didn't. We haven't no, done Johnny Thunder yet. We we did uh, we did the whatever happened to, and we talked about him on something else. But we, I don't believe we did that. We did Captain Fears, the other one I was trying to remember. Oh, we Captain, did. Yeah, we did do Captain Fear. That was good. Yeah, that Captain was Captain really Fear fun. was fantastic. I love that one. We didn't so, do anyway. Johnny Thunder really. I'm looking through our website as fast as I can, and I'm not finding it anywhere. So okay. I don't think we did it. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, this is what happens when you podcast together for ten years, folks. That is amazing. I'm shocked at that. We did, so we got, hold on, wait. I got to know. We got we did Balloon Buster. We did Doctor Occult. Uh, we did Ultra, the Multi Alien. John, no, we did do Johnny Thunder number three. We did. Okay. Yes. Oh, we did. I remember yes, it now. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Okay, that was super fun too. Captain right, so- Fear, and then I did the Crime Doctor. It was the first episode. I knew okay. we did Johnny Thunder. All right. Okay. This okay. has all been a fascinating trip down. Me, this has been a fascinating journey down Google phobia for people. Um, so where, where I was trying to go with that statement and lost my thread when I couldn't remember. So Balloon Buster, Johnny Thunder, and Captain Fear have been my favorites we've done. And all of those are not typical superhero genres. So I think my favorite thing of the what this Who's That series has done for me is it's really opened my eyes to other comic genres that I'm finding I love. I absolutely love. So high adventure, action adventure stuff is just really a treat for me right now. War comics, too. I'm really loving war comics. So uh, I'm very thankful to Who's That for that. Yeah, the closest we've gone to a superhero was Dr. Occult. And even that was, he's kind of an oddball superhero, you know? But that's, every episode has been about kind of a non-superhero, really. I mean, Crime Doctor is a Batman villain, but even he's a villain. So yeah, Yeah. we've, we've sort of kind of gone down these little weird paths. Well, a lot of it too is because we knew who most of the superhero characters were. Yeah, that's so. Right, yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, you know, maybe we should do one on uh, Stanley and his monster because I think the first time I ever saw that was in this show. That'd be fun. <laughs> okay. All right. So uh, up next is uh, DC Day because what's that I hear in the intro? Yet another shag acknowledgement of the Earth Two Aquaman. Yeah, I think DC Dave. I think you had your podcast played wrong or something. There's no <laughs> way that happened. <laughs> Tom Perrin from the TV comics blog, uh, comics blog, excuse me, says, as I listened to this podcast, I was headed out of state to an antique store that has much deeper collection of back issues compared to local comic book stores. I was able to pick up unknown soldier 263 to get a closer look at the Maverick named balloon buster. I am probably in the minority, but I like the vibrant comic booky way balloon buster and the other characters in the few, first few issues of who's who look with the flexographic printing process. It worked really well with the yellow dot borders. Tom, I don't, I don't think it was so much – I think everyone liked Flexograph except the printing errors was the problem. I think people liked the color. I kind of liked the vibrant colors. It, it was really kind of crazy. But the problem was, I think, is that they had so many printing errors is that they realized it didn't work. I think that was the issue that everybody had with Flexograph. Uh, going back to Tom's previous comment, the interesting thing is, after we recorded that episode, I also found some unknown soldier issues with Balloon Buster at an antique shop. Uh, Tom, Tom and I were not together for the record, but I found some myself and picked some up. So um, interesting. We both found those afterwards. Cool. Then from Jeff Tischer, it says, I never listened to who's that shows before. And I honestly don't know why the joy you two have going over balloon buster makes me ready to listen to the older ones. Thanks for reminding me to find my joy in unexpected comics. Ah, that's awesome. Jeff, what a perfect way to end the feedback. That is fantastic. Thank you so much. Absolutely. All right, folks. Well, that is going to do it for this issue of Who's That. Uh, we're going to do a Who's Who next after this. So it'll be a little while till we do the next Who's That. But uh, Rob and I, were kind of putting our thinking caps on. and already got a few ideas on who we might cover. Brother so Power you- the Geek, Dr. Zin Zin. <laughs> um, folks, we will post some images to the Fire and Water Podcast website for the gallery. So you can see those out there. Some of the pages from 
the uh, amazingly sexy Starfire comic. And uh, I think that is going to do it. So find us out on Facebook at Fire and Water Podcast Network. Find us on Twitter, Fire and Water Podcast Network as well. Uh, anything you want to say here right at the end, Rob? Uh, I don't think so. I've really been enjoying just scrolling through the who's ats to find the Johnny Thunder. I, w- I think we've really been enjoying, except for Dr. Occult, which we were a little disappointed with. We were forced uh, to do that one. <laughs> all the other ones have been really good. So, I mean, uh, I have to say yeah, kudos to me for starting this uh, show. I think this is really working out. Uh, I totally agree, and I, I'm glad to recognize how humble you are about it. So that's perfect. <laughs> all right, folks, that is going to do it. Until next episode, who's next? next? <laughs> you sounded so, like, deflated. Next. <laughs> I'm just trying to match your tone. Do you want to do it again? We don't rehearse this. No, no, this is staying in. We don't rehearse, everybody. That's the end of the show. <laughs> oh, this is it? <laughs> that's it. That's the end of the show. <laughs> Go home already. It's over. (laughs) And that is how the beautiful princess mercilessly killed all her enemies and became queen. The end.